Well, if you want to turn to Jonah chapter 3, <clears throat> while you're turning there, Martin Luther, a man who changed our world as we know it, in 1517 nailed 95 theses, 95 points to the Wittenberg University church door. And the first of his points that, has, that really kicked off the Reformation was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Martin Luther thought that repentance wasn't something that Christians began and stopped, but that it was at the very heart of the Christian life. The word repentance uh, is not a word that we use much in common speech in everyday life. But it's very important in the Christian life. And we know it was so, it's so important in the Christian life because it was so important in Jesus' preaching. Even before Jesus, when John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus... Sorry. Uh, even when John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus, he prepared it in this way. He was baptizing in the desert, Mark 1 verse 4 says, and preaching a baptism and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then as we heard in our reading, Jesus came. And when he began to preach, as John had prepared in the baptism of repentance... He preached that the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe in the good news. So repentance is essential, key, core element of the Christian life. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore repentance from chapter 3 of the book of Jonah because I think in many ways... Chapter 3 is a study of repentance. We're going to see, as you can see in your outline, an opportunity for repentance. Secondly, we're going to see the dynamics of repentance. How does repentance work? And thirdly, we're going to see the scope of repentance. So firstly, what is repentance? Well, the word repentance simply means to turn. It means to turn from something to something else. But repentance is sometimes confused and often thought as just merely feeling sorry for the sin that is in our lives. I'm a terrible kind of person because of the things that I've done. And if, if you believe yourself to be a terrible kind of person, then that is repentance. But that is not repentance. Repentance is not simply to think of yourself as rotten or worse than others, or just as bad as others. That might be true. I know for some of you it is true. But that's not repentance. Because that kind of thinking, just that you're a terrible person, only leads to self-loathing. And self-loathing doesn't lead to a change of behaviour. On the other hand, repentance is not a mere change of behaviour. It's not an improvement of behaviour. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus describes the relationship between repentance and new behaviour. And Jesus says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And then he gives an example of the fruits. In Luke chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. See, repentance is not the new deed. Repentance is the inward change of the heart that leads to that new deed. And Jesus is demanding, demanding repentance from those who would follow. If we are people who believe the good news, we must also be people who repent and believe the good news. Repentance was key for Jesus. I wonder if it's key for us. That's what we're going to try and explore as we look at repentance from Jonah chapter 3. What, we, what do we need for repentance? Well, you can see there in, cha- in um, point 2 verse B, we need the grace of God. Repentance comes, firstly, by the grace of God. And we see the opportunity for repentance for Jonah in the word that comes to him at the very start of chapter 3. Why don't you open up to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, you might remember that they are quite familiar words. How does chapter 1, verse 1 start? Just glance back. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Do you see what the writer is setting us up for? The word of the Lord came to Jonah at the very start of this story. The word of the Lord came and Jonah wasn't listening. As we saw last week, it took him to be in the depths of the sea, to be rescued in the belly of that fish or whale or whatever creature it was. For him to start to change the way he thought, The word of the Lord, in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. When it says a second time, in, that, in those two words, that phrase, that phrase is a, is a phrase that's loaded with grace, with God's mercy. Because I don't know about you, but if you had an employee whose key objective was to preach the word, but failed to preach You'd be considering your options. Here is this prophet who has failed to prophesy. Here is this man of God who has run from God, but God has run after him. And not, only, not, not even Jonah's disobedience is enough to derail God's mission and his mercy upon Jonah, as we saw last week. It was this incredible intervention, this, these moments that were brought together by a merciful, a powerful God that can bring a storm, but a God who brings a storm out of mercy. See, why should Jonah get another chance? It's actually not fair. I mean, there, surely there would have been plenty of people in Israel who would have faithfully taken, as much as they may not have liked the idea, faithfully taken the message to Nineveh. It would have been. So why give this guy another chance? It's not fair. And that's right, it's not fair. It's merciful. And mercy isn't deserved. 
Often we as Christians, we are so overcome by God's mercy initially. We're so certain of it rightfully. But one of the consequences of being Christian for a little while is that we believe that God's, we can come to believe that God's mercy is something that we have earned, that it is our right, and it is something that we can expect. Jonah's message, it seems, is, is at odds with his experience. If God has been so gracious to him to give him this second chance, you would think that a man who has experienced such grace would preach a message of such grace. But have a look at chapter 3, verse 4. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, remember, that this is this man who has had this profound experience of grace as we saw last week. But I don't know to you, but at first glance there in verse 4, it doesn't sound as if Jonah's message is particularly merciful. Well, it might not sound like that, but if it doesn't, we need to know something about the Bible because the expectation in the Bible is that for those nations that turn against God, they will be judged. And we read back in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 to 8, that if any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, that, that's, the, that's the standard sitting reality. If a nation is to rebel against God, it will be uprooted, torn down and destroyed. And yet, verse 8 goes on in this way, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. This is God speaking through his prophet Jeremiah. God says that if they are to repent, if any nation is to repent, he will relent and not inflict the disaster that he has planned on it. So judgment is coming is a clear word from Jeremiah. And it's that word that Jonah picks up on. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned unless they turn. You see, the message of grace is... See, the message of judgment is also a message of grace because it's an opportunity. It's always the mercy of God that gives us an opportunity to obey. It's the mercy of God that's come into our lives that gives us the opportunity to obey. Every opportunity that we have to serve God is not, as we so often think about it, it's not a burden on us. An opportunity to serve God is an expression of God's mercy in our obedience. An opportunity to be obedient to God is not a burden. It's an opportunity to experience the mercy of God. We don't deserve God's mercy. The Ninevites didn't deserve God's mercy. Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy. But this is what happens when the grace of God comes into people's lives. 
Secondly, the dynamics of repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, firstly, repentance involves a change of action. And you can see that in verse 2. Have a look in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. God has said this before. And Jonah, as we saw in three or four weeks ago, got up and fled. But here in verse 3, Jonah gets up and obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. See what repentance is? Repentance, firstly, is a change of action. It's a change of behaviour according to the word of God. We see this in the Ninevites as well. The message that comes before them in verse 8, if you want to flick over chapter 3, verse 8, is let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Uh, as we've seen, the city of Nineveh was renowned, was famous for its brutality. And its brutality, not necessarily against other nations, its brutality within its own nation. But here is a call of repentance to, these violent, to this violent nation, to this way of thinking their MO being the only way to get ahead is to harm or injure your neighbour. And in verse 10, with almost exactly the same words as verse 8, they turn from their ways. Jonah obeyed God. Action. These violent people turned from their ways. Verse 10. You see, repentance is first and foremost a change in action. Repentance is not simply feeling sorry or saying that we're sorry. Uh, there is remorse in repentance, certainly, but it's a remorse that leads to change. And note that the change that occurs here for the Ninevites is decisive. There in verse 4, when they repented, they repented on the first day. Change is decisive. Notice that the change is personal. You know, the king sends out this decree. You know, this is a top-down uh, communication piece from the CEO. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. And they did. They did. And we're like, well, of course they did because he's the king and if they didn't, they wouldn't have their head attached to their shoulders. But he tells them in verse 8, but when do they believe? They believe back in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Before the word had even gotten to this king, there was this personal change. It's decisive. It's personal. Repentance is a change in action. Secondly, repentance is a change in attitude. The word of the Lord came to the king, and I want you to notice what it does, what the king does there in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. So the king is on his throne. He's in a position of power, prestige. He, he is in charge. But when the word of God comes to him, 
It's interesting how the author describes his change. Indeed, his repentance. You, you notice it's, it's described there in verse 6 in terms of his clothing, which is an interesting way to describe repentance. But in the Bible, clothes are actually really important. Clothes are important not so much for their fashion sense, but clothes are important in the Bible for what they symbolise. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, the prophet Elijah takes off his cloak and he gives it to a new young guy, Elisha. And by taking off his prophetic cloak, his, uh, his, his prophetic garb, and giving it to Elisha, it's signifying something very significant. It's signifying that he is passing on the baton to this young bloke, Elisha. The king, in taking off his royal robe there in verse 6, the king is making a statement not about his fashion, King is making a statement about his heart. He's making a statement about who he is. He takes off what is his, this royal robe. And he doesn't just take that off. He puts on sackcloth. Um, Now, sackcloth was very, apparently I had to look it up this week, coarsely woven goat's hair. Uh, and it was generally associated with a symbol of mourning. What I didn't know is often as- associated with prisoners. Prisoners would be given sackcloth to wear. So here he is at top dog, taking off his royal robe and taking on the attire of a prisoner. And it's signifying his lowliness. His lowliness before this word that's come before him. See, this is a change in attitude. It's it's an action, but it's an action that displays a change in attitude. He sits there in dust and ashes. And that's what happens when the word of the Lord comes. When the word of the Lord comes to us, it humbles us. It takes us off those thrones that we place ourselves on and it lowers us before his throne and before who he is when we realise who we are. Sackcloth, rags are appropriate in that light. Repentance shows this change in attitude. It shows what he thinks about himself But also notice what he says there in verse 9. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What this suggests is that this king was not expecting God's mercy. And that's the very nature of mercy. That's the very nature of grace. Is that we can't expect it. You can't have conditions on God's grace. You can't have a claim on God's grace. I know we're often so despondent and so upset when, when God doesn't appear to give his grace and mercy to those that we speak to, indeed to those that we love. And I think sometimes in our minds what's behind that is an obligation, an obligation for God that he must show his mercy that he must show his grace. But God is free 
to show mercy to whoever he shows mercy to and grace to whoever he shows grace to. And it's up to us to plead that he would show grace, but it's not up to us to demand that he does. Because it's mercy that God shows. You see, this king knows. Who knows? You know, in in that statement, who knows? It's right. It's right that God would be fiercely angry with him and his people for the violence that they had inflicted upon themselves and upon others. It's right. He realises it's right that God is angry. And now, I know the idea that God is angry is not a popular idea in our world. It's not a popular idea for Christians. Uh, Even Christians will say that, you know, well, my God is too loving to have any anger. And so what they're doing is they're saying that, you know, love is over here and anger is over here. They're opposites and God is on the love side. But that doesn't work. Because love and anger aren't opposed. Imagine you had a child and that child you loved and cared for. They hit 18. They go to university in a different town. They get caught up in the wrong kind of group. They start taking substances, become addicted to them. And what do you do? Those people that have surrounded them, lured them, taken their money and their livelihood from your child, what, you know, what do you do? You sit back and you don't get angry? No, you get angry because you love that child and you can't stand to see that child treated in that way, abused in that way, taken advantage in that way. You see, God is angry. God is angry at sin and what sin has done to us and how we have sinned. See, if we don't have a God who that, sorry, if we have a God that it doesn't cost anything to love or care, then it's not the God of the Bible. If there is evil in our world and he is not angry at the evil in our world, what kind of love does he have? See, this is a God whose love has actually cost him something. This is a God who loves in a sacrificial way because he's angry at the way in which sin has marred humanity and the way in which humanity has used sin and become sinful. The king recognises this, the way he has acted and the way his people have acted in their violence. See, God loves us, but he loves us not to leave us as he found us. God loves us in order to change us. And repentance is part of that. Thirdly, change is a change in... Sorry, repentance is a change in desire. That's the third dynamic of repentance. You see that um, when they put on sackcloth, um, it sounds kind of primitive, doesn't it? I mean, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't put ourselves in, the, uh, in sackcloth, in ashes, or in the dust. But have a look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
want you to notice one thing there. Notice the order. Here's what the order isn't. We'll make a big deal about how terrible we are. We'll put on this sackcloth. We'll throw ourselves in the dust and the ashes and then maybe, maybe God might have mercy on us. How's verse 5 set? The Ninevites believed God. They believed this message of mercy. They believed this message of mercy and then as a response to this message, they declared a fast. It was out of their relationship with God that they did these things. See, there is such a thing as an inauthentic repentance. I mean, we, we say a confession often enough here at church, a prayer of confession, and you can say that prayer. Um, you can say it totally detached from its meaning. That would be a form of inauthentic repentance. There are lots of forms of religious inauthentic repentance. Because in, in an inauthentic repentance, the purpose of repentance, the purpose of repentance is to make God and others happy. So what we do is, okay, we, we want to make God happy, so we'll repent. And if we repent, then hopefully God will do the things that I want him to do. God will bless me the way that I want to be blessed. And so... Many people, us, I would suggest, often engage in this form of inauthentic repentance because we're fearful of the consequences. But what the Gospel says, uh, what, what Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just like the Ninevites believed and then acted appropriately in accordance to what they knew of God's mercy, so too for us. We believe. We believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if there's no condemnation, we act in response to that reality. We act in response to the reality that we already know now that he loves us that God loves you because you put on sackcloth and ashes? No. He loves you because he loves you. He couldn't love you more and he couldn't love you any less because he loves you like he loves his son. The book of Romans tells us that when we trust in the Lord Jesus, we're united with him, we're joined with him. And so when God looks upon us, he sees the perfection, the righteousness of his son. He looks at us in love. And that means that we don't repent as Christian people. We don't repent to get a better relationship with God. We don't repent merely because of the consequences of sin. We don't repent because we're merely breaking God's law. And so we think that we might lose his merit and standing and favour. We repent because we realise that in sin we are breaking not just God's law, but we're breaking his heart. We repent because we're not grieved by the consequences of our sin only. We repent because we're grieved by the sin itself. 
you're a Christian person, you trust in Jesus, you're already in a relationship with him. You're already united in Christ and you could not be any closer to him. It's interesting that they, um, they fast there. We see fasting all throughout the Bible. Um, and it might seem as if they're trying to establish a relationship with God by fasting. But I think it's interesting because in, in fasting, what they're doing is giving up their basic need. Their basic need as a human for food and water. Why would anyone do that? Why would you give up what you in fact need to live as a human? Why would you give up something so vital? Why? Because there's something more basic. There's something more vital. There's something more essential for you. And it's God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We've seen that um, repentance uh, is a dynamic, requires a change in action, attitude and desire. And so we need to ask ourselves, as we come here as Christian people, is God at work in us to create such a change whereby we repent and there's changes in our actions There are changes in our attitudes and indeed, and perhaps most importantly, there are changes in our desires because the consequences of sin are catastrophic. But the reality is that as much as we won't know that the consequence of sin is catastrophic, sin has such a powerful pull upon us. And upon our hearts. And if you don't realise that, then that's a great danger. Because throughout the scriptures, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John is always warning those Christians of sin around them. Sin for us is so sweet to taste, to look at and to touch. But we need to remember there is something for us more desirable something for us more vital. It's God himself. And until we desire God more than we desire sin, we won't fully turn and repent. Jesus' message is exactly the same as Jonah's, as I finish. Jonah said, 40 days. And Jesus says in Luke's gospel, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says also in Matthew 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying those men and women that repented in Nineveh Because of the resurrection, one day they will be raised and they will be assembled as a witness against all those who don't repent, a hostile witness in condemnation. And so Jesus' message is exactly the same as Jonah's message. It's a message of repentance and it's a message of grace. It's a message of grace. Jesus says this at the close of Luke's Gospel. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance 
and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So the demand of Jesus to repent goes to us. But the demand of Jesus to repent also goes to all nations. Let's pray that it might go from us to the nations. Amen. Please stand as we sing.